I would say this year is definitely an inflection point in terms of investors' ESG convictions translating into proxy voting decisions. I don't think that's going away. I think it's going to increase. This is Governance Matters, the podcast for corporate secretaries. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. Change happens fast. The ball begins to roll downhill and gradually gains momentum until it falls off a cliff. When it comes to the evolution of corporate governance, each of today's pair of guests observes we're in the cliff-falling part right now. It's no secret investor interest in ESG risks and opportunities has exploded. Once on the fringe, sustainability has gone mainstream. Later on in the program, we'll hear from Hannah Orowitz, Managing Director on Georgeson's Corporate Governance Advisory Team. Her interview with Corporate Secretary Magazine editor Ben Ashwell is, I think, simply the very best analysis of the latest proxy voting trends you are going to hear. My advice here is not particularly novel, but I think engagement with your investors is more important than ever on these topics. One small problem with the new valuation zeitgeist, though. Truth is, investors can't really understand all the ESG risks and opportunities they are now so assiduously perceiving. That's because there's no coherent, comprehensive, and global system of corporate disclosure that blends traditional financial information with key sustainability information. For way too long, measuring and communicating sustainable value creation has been basically a giant pain. And possibly an exercise in futility. That is, until now. Our first guest believes ESG standards convergence could be a reality well within two years. Janine Gilliot heads up the newly created Value Reporting Foundation. Gilliot's organization is on a mission to simplify sustainability disclosure. But to do it, she says she'll need help from the people who prepare financial information. We reached her in London. Janine, can you, can you describe the, the current reporting environment, uh, where we find ourselves right now, and um, how we got here? Yeah, so I think that we all know uh, that sustainability disclosure or ESG disclosure, and I tend to use those terms interchangeably, is a really complex situation right now for companies. And I think to your point about how did we get here, a part of it is that sustainability disclosure is different from traditional financial disclosure. Because if you think about traditional financial disclosure, it serves a a relatively homogenous user base, which are investors, providers of financial capital, uh, you know, people who are evaluating financial risk, like maybe insurers. Um, sustainability disclosure is of interest to a much broader array of stakeholders, customers, employees, civil society, investors, and it is used for a much broader array of purposes. So that makes sustainability disclosure complex. And that is one reason why there are uh, several sustainability disclosure frameworks and standards out there, because they evolve to serve different users and a relatively new user 
at scale is the investor user. So I think the arrival of investors to this space who have different needs for information and particularly needs for information to be comparable and consistent and reliable, I think that has um, caused this to be a very complex environment for corporate secretaries to navigate because you're now dealing with the information needs of so many different users. Hmm. What is what is I mean what is the bottom line for for the market itself if 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 you have this sort of uh, they call it an alphabet soup of reporting initiatives uh, how does that is it, other than just a headache for corporate secretaries and the uh, users of this information is there sort of a can we point to to evidence that it you know it's really kind of holding things back? Well, I think the world, there's no question the world can get simpler. So if you think about what's kind, what's often, um, as you as you so nicely said, referred to as the alphabet soup, um, we definitely think the alphabet soup can simplify. And we think it can simplify around this concept of target users. So I do think it's possible to envision a global set of standards targeted at the investor user, thinking about through the lens of how sustainability issues impact financial performance and enterprise value. I do think that is an achievable aim because if you think about a financial analyst, whether that financial analyst is sitting in uh, Frankfurt or Hong Kong or New York, they're typically trained similarly. They use similar tools and processes to think about how to make investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think thinking about a, a set of standards that meets the needs of that investor user, that is achievable. What I don't think is realistic is to think that there is a single silver bullet solution that would be a single set of global standards that meets the needs of all users of this information. I think that is extremely challenging. And so I think if you're a company, the way to think about this is at the end of the day, it's a communication strategy question. Mm -hmm. What am I trying to communicate to what audience for what purpose? And what is the tool that best meets the needs to support that communication strategy. And I think um, I would just always frame this through the lens of what's the communication objective, what information to what audience for what purpose. Hmm. So since, since the creation then of, of the value reporting foundation last year, what can you bring us up to date exactly on on what you personally have been doing? yeah, so back to the, the point about simplification and that we think the world can become simpler. Uh, we and, and the Value Reporting Foundation resulted from the merger of SASB and the IIRC. Mm-hmm. Uh, both the IIRC had developed the integrated reporting framework. SASB had developed the SASB standards. Both of those were tools that were focused on communication to investors and providers of financial capital. Both of them were tools that were focused on a company being able to communicate how it creates value and and enterprise value over time. So looking at how to simplify the landscape, 
merging together two organizations with similar conceptual roots was was one way to do that. So we are strongly committed to simplification and at the Value Reporting Foundation, and our, our tools still exist, the Integrated Reporting Framework and the SASB standards still exist, but what we want to do is more tightly align them over time to make them easier for companies to use together. Uh, the other thing at the Value Reporting Foundation, one of our top priorities is to continue to drive simplification in the landscape. And to that aim, we are, we are strongly supporting uh, the effort of the IFRS Foundation, which is the parent of the International Accounting Standards Board. Uh, we're strongly supporting the effort of the IFRS Foundation to form an ISSB, which is an International Sustainability Standards Board, which we think is the ultimate ultimate way to achieve this goal of a single set of global standards for communication to investors. And they're, they're essentially a regulator. You're more involved in developing voluntary disclosure initiatives. How do you, pardon my ignorance, but how, how do you exactly work with them? Yeah, so to clarify, the IFRS Foundation isn't actually a regulator. That's that's a widespread misperception. The IFRS Foundation is overseen by regulators, ah. but the IFRS Foundation um, is a standard-setting body that sets standards for global use, but the process of um, whether those standards are actually mandated for use in specific markets rests with the regulatory authorities in each of those specific markets. Okay. So that's something each country that uses the IFRS standards has its own process for evaluating uh, the standards and deciding whether they will be used in those specific countries. So that's that's an important thing to know. Um, now, to your question about how we work with them mm-hmm. as part of their decision to evaluate establishing the International Sustainability Standards Board, they have formed a technical readiness working group to advise on um, things like uh, technical things around standard setting, um, what's a conceptual framework, how the standards should be organized. Um, and then there's the development. To a, a real tangible example is a, a prototype climate standard, which could be output, ultimately, of the ISSB. And the Value Reporting Foundation is serving on that technical readiness working group. Okay. And, and when do you foresee, then, uh, this sort of nirvana, when, when we do have sort of convergence? Um, are we looking at uh, a couple of years? Or uh, what, what are the next sort of milestones along that, um, that route? Yeah, so I think it's absolutely achievable to, uh, or it's absolutely possible to achieve a global standard targeted at investors within the next couple of years. I think it is definitely possible to achieve that. And part of that is because there is already such strong market support behind particularly the SASB standards and the integrated reporting framework. Now that there's different levels of market support in different countries. 
for the SASB standards and the integrated reporting framework, but there's very strong global market support um, behind both of those tools. And I think if the IFRS Foundation in the creation of the ISSB leverages those tools, then we could see progress very, very quickly. You, you point out in your paper here, which I'm reading just a um, sort of a summary of, that in, it, in this whole process, um, the, the input from companies is critical um, because presumably, I guess, these standards would, would, would only be set by investors. What, in terms of simplicity, I don't know if you pick it up, but are, is there sort of a general theme um, when you speak with boards and companies and perhaps corporate secretaries? What would be the tone, generally speaking, of their comments, uh, say, uh, um, to any you know, consultations on, on, on what a, a, a future reporting regime would look like? Yeah, so it's important to know that standards wouldn't only be set by investors. One of the hmm. one of the tenets of standard setting is to have multiple views feeding out into that process and feeding into that process. And investors are obviously an obvious user. Um, as the user ultimately of the information, they're obviously a very important voice in the standard setting process. But the preparer voice is also a very important voice in the standard setting process. And one of the things that we find is running a standard setting process that includes both the investor view and the preparer view is incredibly valuable because often investors know what topics they think are important to understand value. So investors know that climate change is important. They know that Human cap management is important, retention, for example, of productivity. The investors know that topics they want to understand, say, for a beverage company, a topic like water usage. But investors will not necessarily have the deep expertise in measuring those topics that corporate corporations will because companies often are already managing these topics as part of their own internal management processes. And they often already have relatively robust metrics around some of these topics. So what we find is the most effective standard setting process combines that investor view of what topics and information do I want to understand with the corporate expertise around measurement and measuring performance on those topics. And the result of that, it is high quality standard setting. So both of those voices are very important. As are technical expertise, um, what we find is people who have uh, experience in standard setting processes and especially due process mm -hmm. are extremely valuable participants in standards development. I think I think this whole thing is going to bring uh, investors and companies much closer together. It's almost like an investor relations exercise, uh, in the sense that uh, um, you're not really working against each other, but um, often you know investors can bring interesting ideas to management, uh, and vice versa. Um, yeah, it's funny you'd say that. We often use the word common language, um, and we we use the word common language a lot, hmm. which is that we see 
both the integrated reporting framework and the SASB standards as tools for creating a common language between businesses and investors about uh, the factors that drive value over the long term, and then about how to measure performance on those factors. The common language. I don't know. In general, what what would be sort of hindering companies themselves from from adding their voice or, or giving some kind of input on and and, and shaping these uh, these new regulations? Yeah. So I think companies are actively engaged. Many mm-hmm. leading companies responded to a recent request for input mm-hmm. from the U.S. SEC. Um, we have many leading companies that participate in the SASB standards process. We really value the participation of all of the companies that do. I I would say uh, what might be helpful is, though, for um, companies to begin to see, it's almost a, a mindset shift to begin to see this information, sustainability information, as as important as financial information. So if you think about how a company manages the financial information that's ultimately disclosed to investors, there's a lot of internal control around that. There's a lot of governance around that information. Mm-hmm. There is um, an understanding that that information is strategic to the company And I think thinking about sustainability information through that same lens, this is strategic information that is being used in investment decision-making every day. And given that, what are the processes, the internal processes around deciding what to report, uh, what internal controls over the information, what governance over the information, just bringing that same mindset that is currently applied to financial information to uh, sustainability information. And that includes thinking about a role, playing a role in the broader ecosystem. So a good example of this is, you know, most, most large companies have accounting policy shops. Those accounting policy shops engage in the accounting standards development process. Uh, bringing that same kind of thought process to sustainability information and allocating resources to engage in the sustainability standards development process. It's just a um, elevation of the importance of this information within the company. And I think many leading companies already do that, but it's definitely, at least I don't think it's pervasive across companies right now. Huh. Yeah, that, that's actually kind of exciting. That's what I mean when I say we're sort of at a pivotal time right now. And I think it's you who talked about, you said something to the effect of beyond just reporting, uh, uh, companies have to sort of catch up with, I guess, investors and, and talk in terms of integrated thinking. Yes, and we talk, we talk about integrated thinking a lot. It's uh, how is this information, how is this power sustainability factors integrated into strategy and governance and risk management. And then once the factors are integrated into governance, strategy, and risk management, then how is that integration communicated to external parties, including investors? 
and how is how is it communicated to external audiences in a way that's going to be relevant to each of those audiences and you know and but the investor audience is you know it's an audience that consumes information in relatively unique ways you know consumes likes to have structured information likes to have multi-year trends um relies heavily on data and analytics tools third-party um third-party data providers score providers and so really i think for companies understanding that investor audience and how they consume and use information and then tailor a strategy for communicating to them i think that's that's incredibly value add for companies Okay, and you're calling up for companies just to wrap up. Then you're calling up for companies to uh, to play more of a role in uh, in this whole process because because if they are going to speak up now is the time to do it. If the, I think that is very well put, I think this this landscape is evolving very very rapidly, and there are many many efforts around the world. They are all the very good news, and I'm very very optimistic about this is that many of the people involved in all the different efforts around the world are making real efforts to keep them connected and really do have a common aim of some sort of more coherent um, system that works for both companies and investors. So that's very exciting, but it will be essential that companies play a role and essential that companies play a role in helping to design a system that's going to work for them. And so that means participating in all the various consultations, participating in standard setting processes, and just viewing this as, you know, coming back to the financial accounting analogy, think of the resources that companies put into financial accounting and what the financial accounting infrastructure looks like. How do we get something as mature and as robust for sustainability disclosure? That's the aim. When it comes to ESG issues, this year's proxy season will be remembered for one thing. And that's the decisive shift in investors' willingness to use proxy votes to press their views. Let's go now to Ben Ashwell and Hannah Orowitz. Thanks, Jeff. Hannah and the team at Georgeson recently published a study of proxy seasons so far, which looked at results from companies in the Russell 3000 between July 1st, 2020 and June 2nd, 2021. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, happy to be here. Absolutely. And so we're going to be discussing some of the ENS takeaways uh, from the the proxy results you've looked at. Uh, and we'll start with uh, looking at some of the environmental proposals. So your study found that 12 of 33 environmental shareholder proposals that reached a vote have passed, uh, which translates to a passage rate of over 36% of environmental proposals voted upon. And that's double the number that passed in all of the 2020 proxy season. So in that context, what were some of the standout votes this year for you so far? There were there were two that I would I would highlight first and foremost. Those were a, a plastics pollution proposal at DuPont and a proposal regarding climate change reporting at Bloomin Brands. And the, the reason I think those two proposals are notable is both because in and of themselves, they received very high support, but beyond the support level themselves, they had a significant shift in support 
year over year. And I think that shift really illustrates the, the, the major change that we've seen this season in terms of support for some of these environmental proposals. The Bloomin Brands proposal, I mentioned that was climate change reporting. Within the context of that proposal, it was including a request for information around carbon emissions and the deforestation impacts of the company's supply chain. And the proposal got over 75% support. Last year, it had a proposal that was similar. It was more narrowly focused exclusively on the supply chain emissions piece and got 26% support. And then the DuPont proposal was even more extreme. That one I mentioned, it was focused on plastic pellet pollution. It got over 81% support and they had a nearly identical proposal in 2019 that only got about six and a half percent support. So, you know, those are really, really dramatic shifts and I think show how quickly investors' perception of climate as a, a potentially financially material risk has has changed this season. Yeah, that's that's fascinating and very notable. And in, in the report, actually, you note that, you know, BlackRock and State Street became signatories of Climate Action 100. And, you know, in, in, in recent years, some of the larger institutional investors have been criticized for a perceived disconnect between, you know, their public messaging on ESG and their actual proxy voting. Uh, is this the year that that changed for, for climate-based resolutions? You know, I would say this year is definitely an inflection point in terms of investors' ESG convictions translating into proxy voting decisions. But that being said, I think it's helpful to sort of take a step back and look at the history of some of these proposals. And, you know, I think there has been a progression over the past several seasons. In each of 2017, 2018, 2019, there were a handful of proposals that passed. I don't have the exact numbers, but let's say it was in the ballpark of, you know, between six and 10 proposals in each of those years. We then in 2020 saw a significant jump where there were 20 that passed. And then this year we saw a big jump again. And, you know, I think that's happening. Things like collective engagement by groups like Climate Action 100, I think are having a notable influence on the results. Looking at the proposals that, that passed, there were at least five at oil majors this season that passed. Those were all companies that are Climate Action 100 target companies, and there have been other proposals at those companies that passed this season. So I, I think that is a significant factor. And you know, we won't have details in terms of how investors and voted had voted on specific proposals until the the NPX filings are publicly available at the end of August. But I would say anecdotally, looking at the vote identification we've done for clients this season, I'd expect that when that disclosure becomes available, we'll see shifts in support from a lot of large institutions, including some of those like Vanguard and BlackRock who have been among the least supportive historically on these proposals. And, and BlackRock has already put out some disclosure in its stewardship reporting, not for the peak of proxy season, but for the first quarter, they reported that globally they supported 75% of ENS proposals that they voted on. And you know, for them, that's really a sea change in terms of how they've been approaching the proposals, but it is consistent with what they indicated they were going to do in the lead up to this proxy season in terms of the changes to their voting guidelines and what Larry Fink said in his letter. So, you know, I think there's, there was some history coming up to this, but I, this does seem to be a tipping point 
And, you know, we did also see some interesting activity in some of the fund complexes um, in terms of them splitting their votes. Well, they've always had the ability to do that. This may turn out to be anecdotal, but we did see, for example, instances where Capital Group did split its vote, where Cap World might have voted differently from Capital International, for example. Mm, That's really interesting. Um, And I I also think you're absolutely right to zoom out a little on the environmental proposals, because I know, you know, from conversations we have with, with, uh, you know, people that put those proposals forward, it's very much an iterative process. And of course, understanding of materiality has evolved quite rapidly in recent years, uh, kind of in tandem with, you know, messaging from the larger institutional investors. And so it's helpful to get that that broader context. Um, Yeah. Definitely. I would also note that the shift hasn't just been in shareholder proposals. We also we did see um, an uptick this year in directors that received support below the 90 percent level and things like board diversity and management and oversight of ESG do appear to be two significant contributing factors to that shift. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and we're speaking on a, a on a week where Alison Heron Lee was uh, talking about just that at the uh, <laughs> society yes. conference. Um, so very timely. Um, I, I mean, to that end, you know, thinking about the company perspective, you, you note in the report that in in some instances management actually supported uh, some climate related proposals, which you know is, is quite unusual as, as you sort of write in the report. So, do you have a sense for why that may be? You know. I think what we're seeing is that companies are also shifting their views in terms of how they are thinking about the materiality of some of the risks presented by systemic issues like climate change. And, you know, it, it's it's not unheard of for uh, management to recommend in favor of a proposal. But, you know, like we said in the report, I'm not aware of an instance previously where we saw that on an environmental or social proposal. And there were at least four instances where that happened this season. And there was also sort of evidence of that shift in perception from a company standpoint outside of the four corners of the proxy this season, where, you know, sticking with environmental proposals, there were, I think, 82 this season that we saw where they were withdrawn compared to 43 last year. And presumably that's because the the recipient of the proposal reached an agreement with the proponent and looking at what some of those topics were, where we saw that the highest category of withdrawals by far related to climate change reporting. So I think companies are are sort of coming into alignment with investors and understanding that there's there's a desire for that information in order for investors to be making uh, both capital allocation and stewardship decisions. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see that that alignment because I think to some extent companies and, and a lot of these investors have been on a, a similar journey in recent years around <laughs> climate change reporting and, and so on. And, and so uh, it it makes sense that there's that engagement and discussion in season around that. Um, but one of the, the the final topic we wanted to touch on on, on the environmental side was uh, that we saw seven sound climate proposals go to a vote this year. Um, there were a, a couple backed by TCI. Uh, there was some by As You Sow. And then there was also uh, some from the management or backed by the management of Moody's and S&P Global. Um, 
our audience in Europe will perhaps be more familiar with, say, on climate, and to some extent, it, it is what it says on the tin. <laughs> um, <laughs> but can you talk us through uh, what those proposals outlined and whether we can expect to see more of them next year? Yeah. So, I mean, at a high level, yeah, stay on climate is borrowing from the stay on pay structure and that it's asking investors to give an advisory thumbs up or thumbs down vote on a company's climate plans and strategies. In the case of the shareholder proposals, that means that you know, they're asking for the advisory vote, but then they're also asking for re reporting on climate matters. You know, beyond that, the proposals had some nuances. Some of them were time bound in terms of when they expected the reporting. Others weren't. And one in particular, uh, Monster Beverage, was actually requesting an amendment to the company's bylaws in order to implement the advisory vote. And the reason I note that is because I do think those nuances influenced the support levels of the proposals. But overall, um, we, we saw at least two that received more than 30% support. And I think there was at least one more after our June 2nd cutoff date that crossed that threshold. Um, on the management side, you mentioned Moody's and S&P. Those were highly supported. They were well above 90% in both cases. But what I think is important to note is that the shareholder proposal votes were sort of an advisory vote in perpetuity. The management proposals were committing to hold an advisory vote only through 2022. And I think that was something that would have been positively viewed by investors because of some of the, the arguments against these proposals. There was sort of a range of concerns, but broadly speaking around things like is the the construct of the proposal shifting responsibility from the board to shareholders. Do shareholders have the bandwidth to look at a high volume of these proposals on something very technical and detailed in a short period of time? Um, things like that. And so, you know, CalPERS, for example, was very vocal in its its preference of using director elections to express concern with climate strategy instead of this sound climate construct. And then, you know, I would say the, the other relevant concern that some investors put forth was, again, like I said, this borrows from the say on pay construct. And in the U.S., say on pay has had arguably very little effect in reigning in executive compensation. And so I think there was concern from some investors that say on climate could potentially be detrimental in terms of it becoming a rubber stamp process where you know, all but the most egregious companies get a pass. Um, so in, in light of those concerns, TCI indicated that it's planning to revise its campaign in the US to, to move away from the advisory vote element and to instead focus on the climate reporting aspect. And I think that's really important for companies that are either engaging with TCI or as you so, or are thinking about their climate reporting overall to understand um, because those proponents are already engaging for next season. And there's there's one vote in particular that I think uh, is sort of like where I would say you can read the tea leaves on where we're going. And that was the vote at Booking Holdings. There were two proposals at, at Booking Holdings that went to a vote. One was a, a stay on climate. And then the other was what I've, I refer to as a net zero benchmark proposal, which was a request for a climate transition report that benchmarks the company's goals and plans against peers. Um, and against science-based targets, against the net zero benchmark that Climate Action 100 released earlier this year, things like that. 
And the Stay on Climate proposal got support in the, the high 30s, I want to say. The climate transition report passed, got over 56% support. That, that construct, that net zero construct, only went to a vote at a couple of companies, but it did come very close to passing at another company. And so I think that formulation is the proposal that is likely to proliferate next year. And it does seem to be getting pretty, pretty strong traction with investors. That's really interesting to hear, and especially the piece around, uh, as you say, potential concerns around uh, sort of inadvertently sort of validating uh, companies' uh, actions around climate, as we've seen, you know, with Sound Pay often getting large support uh, and, and so on. And so it's, uh, it's a really interesting parallel to draw with the Sound Climate and, and thinking about uh, as we head into next year, how that may evolve, mm-hmm. the conversation may evolve or shift. Um, but speaking of the conversation evolving and shifting, I'd love to move into a discussion about the social proposals uh, a little bit that we've seen uh, so far. And, you know, I'd like to start with a discussion of workforce data, because uh, we've kind of seen three main issues sort of emerging this year. Of course, uh, proposals calling for racial equity audits, uh, disclosure of EE01 data, and reporting on DE&I efforts, which are all uh, ostensibly quite similar uh, discussions. Um, so I'd love to, if you could talk us through the distinctions between the three and where they did get traction. Sure. So let's, I guess let's start with EEO1. Uh, so that, that one's probably the best known to people. Proponents, most publicly the New York City controller, but there were other proponents like Trillium and Calvert. What they did was they focused on companies that had made public statements affirming commitments to racial equality efforts and asked those companies to publicly disclose their EEO1 survey data, which you know, is the breakdown of a company's workforce on the basis of, of gender, race, ethnicity at different levels of the workforce. And so that, that campaign was highly successful. The controller started with a letter writing campaign last summer. They focused on 67 S&P 100 companies, and I think around 40 of those committed to disclosing their EEO1 data before moving to a shareholder proposal stage. The remaining companies that did receive proposals, the majority of those agreed to disclose before the proposal then went to a vote. So as of the, the date of our report, there were only three of those proposals that were voted upon, but two of them passed. And the success of that campaign was really outside of the proxy voting process. And it's, it's really interesting just and, to jump in on that one. You mentioned Trillium. Yeah. I know we've we've talked to Jonas Crone uh, quite a lot about this topic in, in the past. Uh, and I know it's something that Trillium have, you know, engaged companies on for some time. And, for and I years, think yeah. the events of last summer and, and discussion of, uh, you know, DE&I and, and, and racial equality, you know, really kind of, supercharged or put some additional muscle behind that conversation um, and so it's really interesting to see how quickly uh, that conversation has evolved in the last 12 months. Yeah I mean it was it's been a huge acceleration and because of the success of that campaign this went from being a substantial minority practice to disclose your EEO1 data to a majority practice within the S&P 100 within the season. So there definitely was huge momentum behind that. Um, The other proposals that you asked about, so the DE&I reporting, there were four 
of those proposals that passed, and they were seeking annual reporting on a company's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So looking at things like how the board assesses the effectiveness of a company's DEI program and how it takes goals and metrics into account and measuring progress. And you know, we talked about proposals where the where management recommended in favor of the shareholder proposal. The the proposal at IBM on DNI reporting was one of those where the board recommended that shareholders support it. And accordingly, it, it did get very high support in the, the mid-90s. But overall, those proposals did see high support even in the absence of a company recommending. Um, the last one that you mentioned, racial equity audit proposals, those were new this year. And while none of them passed, I do think that it was a, a successful proposal for a first year proposal in that several of them got above 30% support, which is generally a threshold where you start to think about the need for responsiveness. And BlackRock actually revised its guidelines in coming into this proxy season to say that they would be looking for responsiveness from companies where a proposal got above 30%. So it's a, it's a good threshold to look at. So similar to the EEO1 campaign, those proposals tied company statements expressed in solidarity or support of those, the fight against systemic racism with actions by the companies that potentially were not in alignment with the statements. And they were asking companies to conduct a third-party audit and report um, on an assessment of how the, the company's behavior sort of aligns with a, a racial equity lens. Um, and given one, like I said, none passed, but given the level of support they received, I expect that we will probably see those again next season. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to think about, you know, those three groups of, of, of proposals and how, you know, it does feel like we're in this era at the moment where, you know, there is greater accountability on, on sort of corporate messaging around some of these topics. And it, it's, uh, it's fascinating to see these proposals popping up and, and uh, you know, being so you know, even in the, the racial equity audit uh, proposals, you know, being so well supported for a first year proposal. Uh, it's really interesting to see that. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to move on to another topic under the social proposals banner, which is, um, you know, thinking about political lobbying, uh, where there was sustained interest again this year. Um, it is, of course, a very polarized time here in the United States. Um, and there have been eight proposals, I believe, related to political lobbying and contributions so far this year. Um, so, I mean, do you think, what are your takeaways from these? And, and do you think this scrutiny will continue to grow in this area or continue to be sustained? So I, I think taking the second part of your question first, yes, I, I do expect that we're going to see this as a potential area of proliferation next year. And you are correct, there were eight that passed um, as of June 2nd this year. Four of them were political contributions and four were lobbying proposals. So not a new topic, but that's double the number that passed in all of last season. And I would sort of, in saying that I think they're going to proliferate, I would take into consideration that the proposals that were voted on in this proxy season were submitted and generally baked before the January 6th capital riot. And you know, in the wake of that, there's certainly been enhanced scrutiny of companies' political spending and whether it aligns with stated strategic priorities similar to 
what we've been talking about with some of these other proposals, right? So, you know, we are aware of proponents that have already started letter writing campaigns on this topic and have been uh, putting in inquiries to companies around their political their political contributions. So I, I do think it's going to be an area of focus for, for 2022. Yeah, we, uh, we recently hosted a, a panel discussion with uh, Bruce Freed from the Center for Political Accountability and uh, uh, Vina Romani just before she left series. And we were talking about, you know, the work that uh, both of them were doing on uh, sort of um, uh, conflicting, uh, you know, conflicting interests, uh, again, where there's a, uh, sort of lobbying or contributions that may uh, not necessarily align with the publicly stated values or goals of, of, of the company. Uh, and I think it'll be really interesting to see this time next year, uh, how that has, um, you know, whether that has translated into a, a more pronounced discussion uh, next proxy season. Um, yeah. But, uh, in, you know, so in terms of takeaways, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to hear you describe uh, sort of the evolution of some of these ENS uh, proposals. Um, you know, we've seen some real some new topics emerging and in other areas you know sort of existing topics get increased support um so heading into this off season you know what should governance teams be thinking about in terms of you know engagement with shareholders and understanding their priorities moving into next year yeah it's a great question and my advice here is not particularly novel but i think engagement with your investors is more important than ever on these topics coming back to where we started, you know, I do think we've reached an inflection point in terms of how management of ENS issues is impacting proxy voting decisions. I don't think that's going away. I think it's going to increase. If you think about uh, developments in the past, you know, six to 12 months, like the net zero asset managers initiative, for example. So I do think it's important to have dialogue with your investors around your practices to understand what their priorities are so that you're focusing your efforts appropriately um, and to maybe put a piece of data around that. We put out a white paper recently on investors' ESG integration practices. And what we found in, in that research was that almost 40% of the 350 um, institutional investors that we looked at had have put in place proprietary like in-house ESG rating systems. I think that that's a practice that's only going to continue to climb. And and given that you know investors are are doing this work in-house and really building out their their house view on these issues, I think it's important to understand your specific investors' expectations for them to understand how your company is addressing the ESG risks and opportunities that are most most relevant to your company. And if a, an investor hears from a company on these topics for the first time when it's in the context of trying to turn a vote around, they're going to be much less persuaded by any information that's exchanged in that conversation. So, you know, if there's already been a positive history of engagement, that's going to put the company in better stead. Also, I think another important consideration for companies is in building out your ESG reporting, be mindful that at, at this point in time, investors are likely your most significant stakeholder to consider in that reporting. And with that in mind, align your reporting to investors' expectations, both in terms of what frameworks and standards you are referencing in that reporting, but also in terms of the, the rigor um, with which you're approaching the development of that report. So that, you know, given 
how important the information is to investors at this point in time, you have an appropriate internal team in place uh, that's, that's giving due weight to the information that is being reported upon. I think that's great advice. Uh, I, I particularly like the part there about, you know, understanding the proprietary ESG systems that are being built by investors themselves. Um, you know, we often hear, uh, you know, people talking about the challenges of understanding the sort of ESG ratings and rankings landscape, and that's a well-established conversation <laughs> at this point. Um, but I think understanding also the extent to which those are inputs to then investors on proprietary, uh, you know, ratings internally that they may be using um, is extremely helpful and uh, actually a really good point, I think, to engage investors on uh, to, to better understand uh, those systems. I know um, when Sage Street Global Advisors unveiled their R factor uh, rating system, you know, they were very, uh, they kind of followed it up with a real kind of PR campaign to say, this is the, this is what we're doing and we'd love to talk to you about it. Um, so yeah, I think it's, that engagement point is, uh, is definitely well taken. Yeah, definitely. And that, since you mentioned R factor, I mean, that's a great, tool to use too. The, the State Street will provide that score to any company that asks for it. And while there's there's not a ton of information in in terms of the the score itself, it's not like an MSCI report where you get you know pages of analysis. But the score itself is underpinned uh, by the SASB standards, and so knowing that score can give you a sense of how you know one major investor is thinking about your practices as compared to the SASB standard for your industry. And that's your Governance Matters podcast. Our thanks to Georgeson's Hannah Orowitz and the Value Reporting Foundation's Janine Gilliatt. And thank you for listening. I'm Taylor Hughes.